Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Mustafa Kudrati, President and Chief Executive Officer of Plan International USA. We're going to be looking at the broad range of work that you do across the globe, their recently launched report, the State of the World's Girls Report, and a variety of things such as girls' perception of their ability to participate in the political process. Uh, you might be surprised by what those perceptions actually are. We're looking at some initiatives that they're driving forward in Guatemala and Brazil, looking at going beyond grant making and supporting girl-led organizations on the ground, elevating local voices and co-designing and much more. And we're also going to touch a little bit on women's economic empowerment and the relevance that has on the well-being of girls around the world. So without further ado, Mustafa, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Hey, good morning and thank you so much, Alberto. Excellent. Well, you're out there in Washington, D.C. I'm here in the U.K. Tell me a little bit about Plan International USA. I know you're the president and chief executive officer. We've had one of your colleagues on the show before uh, heading up Plan International here in the U.K. Give us a little bit of an overview about Plan International. Um, so just a quick overview. Plan, Plan International as a global organization was founded in 1937 uh, when a journalist and a refugee worker came together to help children affected by the Spanish Civil War. And then so for more than 85 years, Plan International has been working to elevate girls' rights and gender equality by creating opportunities for girls all around the world. Plan International is amplifying voices of girls to unite and create the change that they want to see in the world. So just small, one small caveat for, for, for the audience as well, okay, um, is that often when we think about girls, we think about uh, our children who are below the age of 10. And what we use at PLAN is, is the full uh, UN definition of, the, of a girl who is anyone, uh, a female who is under 18 years of age. So just to keep that in mind, why is that important? It's really important when we're addressing issues around child marriage or sexual exploitation or transitions into adulthood, that it's important to keep in mind that a lot of our programming is focused around the full definition of the girl and where she stands in, in the age continuum as well. Um, so in the US, okay, in the US, uh, you know, what we're working hard on is uh, to unite girls, our vision is to unite girls and, and their allies to defeat gender inequality and build girl leaders. Um, and through this campaign that we have going, we'll talk about it a little more, uh, Plan USA, the We Are The Girls campaign, Plan USA is committed to raising $200 million by 2024 to spread a very powerful new positive understanding of girls, affirm their strength and resilience, empower them to share their stories and be mentors and activists to, who encourage their peers to join the movement as well. So this is what we've evolved into. This is where we are. This is who Plan, Plan is as well. Of course, I'll tell you more about Plan USA as we go along. Excellent. And for, for those of you listening who, who like to map things out to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, we're looking at Sustainable Development Goal 5. SDG 5 shorthand. What's the state of affairs in the U.S.? You're based out there in the U.S. How is the picture? Um, the picture is interesting. Okay, so we, when we're engaging with girls, and in a lot of our programming, while a lot of our work takes place in, uh, for want of a better word, um, takes place in low and middle income countries or the global south, um, we do do a tremendous amount of work engaging young girls in uh, 
in the United States as well, especially in terms of political participation and, and in terms of raising their voices, elevating their voices so they're able to advocate uh, for issues that matter to them. And what we're finding out over and over again, Alberto, is one, they're excited to participate when given an opportunity, but they're also despairing tremendously about the opportunities to participate that are being made available to them in the wider world. So, so a couple of quick things, that, that a couple of quick facts, and this is, this is, this is evident in the state of the uh, World's Girls report that came out yesterday that plan issues every year, that when asked around what are the challenges that girls and young women face um, in terms of participation, uh, we, were, we were surprised and yet, and yet not quite so given the state of politics in the United States that 39% of girls in North America say they don't think politicians would listen to them as a girl or a young woman. And then many of them that led to them saying that they don't believe that they will ever be voted in. And the majority don't believe that they can ever be voted in as a president of the United States. And this is a generation that's going to come into power. They won't be president for the next 20 or 25 years. And yet they're already entering their teenage years, um, not thinking that they can be considered, they, they, they would be considered, the candidacy would be considered. Even though there's a, a, a woman vice president. Absolutely. So even, even though that's the case, when we take into account uh, a representation of all the United States, uh, girls are not feeling that sense of power or the sense of change that they want to see. So it's actually redoubled our own uh, sense of urgency and our own sense of the importance of the work that we're, we're, we're working on, uh, that we're doing. Because without that change, it's not, we're not going to see girls change. Um, so tell me, tell me more about your report. It's just come out hot off the press. And uh, I'd love to find out uh, who participates in that, how, it, uh, how you go about it in terms of maybe the methodology without getting too much into the nitty gritty. And also maybe some of the, um, some of the um, I imagine there might be some differences in those percentages between different regions in the U.S. Um, yeah, and I don't, we, the, the report is global. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's a, over 10,000 uh, girls participate worldwide in this report. And so we slice and dice by region, by global regions, um, but the data are not wide enough. To, Fair um, enough. And, and, the, and before you tell us more about that, the, the full name of the report and where someone, how can someone get a hold of it? Aha. Uh-huh. So if you just go to plan.org, uh, and, uh, to our website and uh, or type in State of the World's Girls Report 2022. That will take you to the right places. Great, great. And, and just a, a very, very quick highlight on the report and, and the methodology is that it, it's survey-led. Uh, we do a whole survey uh, where girls participate in filling out the survey and then, and then we analyze the results. But then that's followed up with a, with a whole bunch of individual interviews as well. And there's opportunity for uh, for them to leave comments in, and then that that is all gathered into to put together some of the key highlights of our, our report as well. Great, and and yeah, so overall, you know, this is the big big sense of the report. What we want to highlight is across the world, and I know I highlighted the United States, but across the world, um, girls are are seeing that there is not enough representation out there. There is some progress, but there's not representation out there. And they're not feeling that they have enough avenues to, to raise their voice um, 
uh, where it matters and that when they do raise their voice, they don't think that the issues that they care about uh, will be taken into consideration. I imagine a, a topic that's of quite a bit of relevance is uh, child marriage. Um, and, uh, and, and also, I guess, maybe if we're looking at even not so much regions, but within regions, um, city centers versus rural parts, I guess. Yeah, there's some difference. We try to differentiate all of that um, just to give you a sense of in terms of their priorities. Uh, uh, so this the, the report talks about priorities that girls set, not the ones that we as adults set, but these are their key priorities. And they do bring up um, uh, issues around gender-based violence. They talk about, you know, they, they're really concerned around online abuse and misinformation and, and the kind of abuse they're facing in the world. Um, and then it's it's mostly related, I think, this particular year with what's happening in the global economy. Um, key areas for political action do include their top, top, top line is poverty and unemployment are things that are coming up um, quite significantly as well. But um, concerns around climate change, concern around reproductive health and rights and the state of reproductive health and rights is something that comes up over and over again in the report as well. And so participation in the labor market, participation in the political process, uh, these are two things that you highlight specifically. Um, you at the leadership of Plan International, you and your colleagues in, in other regions, you look at the, this report, you, you digest the findings. What are the sort of main action points that you need to take going forward? What are the main calls to action that you'd like mm -hmm, listeners, mm -hmm. policymakers, academics, normal people to, to, to take a look at and think about? Yeah, yeah. A couple of things. It can, you can look at this report and get very, you know, start despairing very quickly. So I'll tell you a little bit about our approach, what we try to do. And when we talk about, you know, it's easy when we throw out words like it's girl led and, and girl decided, what does that mean, right? And then so people immediately think about that. I'll give you a couple of examples of what we what we try to do. So I'll start with the example of the work that we're doing in, in lower middle income countries that we're um, in, in Brazil and Guatemala. Uh, we wanted to run programs. We were thinking hard as we're discussing decolonization and localization and supporting local efforts that what we wanted to set up was a program that helped provide grants to girl-led organizations or girl leaders, girls advocates. So what would we typically do is adults come in, decide all the conditions, set up all the conditions for, for the grant making process, and then just tell girls now apply. And we say, no, let's change this, this, this let's invert this. So we gathered 30 um, really amazing girl leaders in Guatemala and Brazil, brought them together and asked them, if you had an opportunity to set up uh, a grant making process for, for us, um, how would you set it up? And it was very, very interesting, Alberto, because the girls then went in and created set up conditions for the application process. They have a very, very good um, set of uh, criteria that they use to judge all the applications that they come in. We don't judge the criteria. We don't decide who gets the grants and who doesn't. The girls themselves decide. And then they asked some of the grantees, what are the best ways in which uh, we can help you so you can fulfill all the requirements for continuing to meet grant, um, uh, the, you know, continuing to meet all, fulfill all the grant conditions, you know, the typical, the reports and the financials and everything else. And they came back and said, hey, these are the ways we would like to report. And they said, look, asking us to a written report is not something that's going to go down well. We're far more familiar in today's day and age. We can present a great video 
uh, and of our work and tell you about our work through speaking, but not through um, through a written report. And so they asked, saying, can we submit something in uh, on video? And we and and the team said, yes, you can go ahead and do that. And then we worked with our accountants and our grants manager, so they had to unlearn or relearn different ways of managing grants than everything else that they'd done before, and that got them excited as well. So I think the reason I bring this up is just to say girls' participation, enabling girls' participation works, addressing areas of concern immediately in front of us, they really work, and giving them that opportunity works. So in terms of a call to action, so switching over to a call to action, um, three simple things, okay, that we can do. One, look at our own uh, sphere of change. We all have our spheres of change. Look at our own sphere of change and start addressing gender. Identify uh, places where gender inequality is taking place and address it. So I'll give you a quick example here. Last week, I was invited um, to speak at the Global Health Club at my, at my children's uh, high school. Mm-hmm. And when I went there and we were discussing and they were asking me more about about plan and what plan does. And I was telling them the same, you know, something similar to what I'm sharing with you today. And they, you know, finally they asked me, what's your call to action? I said, hey, take a look at your own school. In the last 10 years in the student government, there's not been a single um, person identifying themselves as girl or as female as the president of the student government. And the majority of every elected member of student government has been has been a boy or someone identifying themselves as male. And 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 what we, what's, and they looked at me and I said, well, what action you can take is whether you're a boy or a girl in this room that I'm addressing, key action you can take is address whatever is in your sphere of influence in the next set of elections. Why take that for granted? Why can't you support uh, a girl's candidacy? It's not as if girls haven't stood up and fought for the presidency of the student government but you've got to be there. You've got to vote and put, you know, put your actions where, where they matter because these kinds of trends really matter. Girls will, will be leaving this high school thinking, oh, they're not eligible for political office and hence the kinds of results that we're seeing in our survey as well. So that's one action, right? The second action that we can take and which we're really excited about is we encourage all of you under, under the We Are The Girls campaign that Plan USA has, has initiated as well we're encouraging girls to sign the pledge on our website and add their voices um, to the chorus of girls um, calling for change. And if you're a parent, if you're a supporter or an ally, we also ask you to sign that pledge um, and become an ally. It's a simple pledge that says I'm committed to supporting girls uh, to come into their own power and to to address a a more positive understanding of girls. And then the last point, and I just, you know, and, and this is important for us. It's, 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 it's something we can't ignore. Money matters, okay? Money matters. Uh, we can't do our work. We can't support the kinds of initiatives that I just told you about in Brazil and, and, um, and Guatemala uh, without um, also having programs that support that. And so uh, if you're capable, you're able to then choose to donate. And again, um, going to the, we are the girls campaign website um, through planusa.org or we are the girls.org will get you there i like it it's it, it's good that you're actually not shy about uh being clear unequivocal about the fundraising angle like you know i think it's good to to you know the squeaky wheel gets the oil right what's the <laughs> absolutely what's the name of the campaign Re- just repeat exactly so the, the, the name of the, the campaign 
the campaign is called the We Are the Girls campaign. And through that, we've com we're committed to raising $200 million by 2024 um, to spread this new powerful positive understanding of girls, support not just our work here in the United States, but also the work in low and middle income countries as well. Great. And now going back to what you mentioned a little bit earlier, really interesting about the, the approach and the change in your approach that you're taking in Guatemala and Brazil. Um, identifying girl-led organizations and not just saying, okay, we're going to grant out, but actually having that participation, that local participation, that local voice. And um, and, I, and I love the, the video angle as well. I guess it's a bit of that trust-based philanthropy as well, even though you haven't mentioned it by, by name as such, but that seems to be their part of it, right? Absolutely. I, I think I, I think that's, that's a key part of it. The other part is just... Uh... It's trust-based, and yet then it's also about be building these kinds of partnerships and allyships, so it works. Is it easy? Does it involve a lot more of our staff time than we would normally do? Absolutely. But if we're interested in building institutions, in building, um, in building out uh, organizations that are for and work for and are off girls, then we will. We have to put in these resources. We can't ignore these kinds of processes or these ways of engagement as well, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Now, a question, I'm a question I'm sure is lingering in the back of many people's heads uh, as they're listening to you is, okay, I, I understand you're identifying girl-led organizations, you're asking for, for their voice, for co-design and so forth, um, but you're using the definition from the UN about having that age bracket, right? So mm -hmm. under 18, what does that mean then? Because presumably there's only so much expertise you can gain at 18. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I would say a couple of things. These are often the way we do this work. Uh, when we're granted to girl-led organizations, they're often um, the age ranges in our, uh, the age ranges from usually from, uh, in terms of their leadership from 15 year old onwards. Okay. Uh, and sometimes they do cross over the 18 year old age. Uh, because we recognize again that transition into into adulthood is a process. It's not it's not defined perfectly. So sometimes that crosses over as well, and we're fine with that um, as well. Um, so I, I think we're trying to lead that. We're trying to focus on that, and then we're recognizing as well that for programs that involve younger younger children, younger girls, that they just have to be appropriate processes for their participation and for us to listen. They those will be adult led. Uh, it's not that all of our partnerships are with girl-led organizations, but we're encouraging through as many of our processes for that co-design, for their engagement, that, and that that engagement be one that's appropriate for, for, for the different ages that we're involved in. Now, this, uh, this really interesting drive and um, exploration into changing the way you're doing certain things in Guatemala, in Brazil, when did it start? How did that thinking, what was the sequencing of, of, uh, of, of thought and, and why those two markets? I, I think for that particular one, it was, I think, interest from our own country offices. So we're a large organization, right? We're a global membership organization. We have 20 member organizations, uh, member countries, and then um, 70, we work in a total of 78 countries. So we just checked with our colleagues in our country offices who expressed interest in Guatemala and uh, uh, Brazil were most interested in the process. So they said, okay, we're ready to run here. And we said, okay, let's get you engaged in this, in this particular 
uh, way of working. So I, I don't know if that helps answer the question, but that's that's a little bit of. Uh, and the sequencing, because obviously, well, no, I say obviously, it's not obvious. Um, but if you're in this field day in and day out, you do hear a lot mm -hmm. about the empowering uh, local voices, lived experiences, and, and and so forth. So to you and to me, maybe these aren't new topics, but to many people listening, right, maybe, right. maybe they are. But tell me, when did this start percolating inside Plan International? When when was their thinking, well, maybe the status quo isn't really great. We need to explore options that are different. So this is several years ago. As I, I think in, um, uh, globally, as a, as a global organization, we decided about eight years ago um, to get very focused. We've been a child rights organization all this time. We did have a very strong focus on girls, but it was eight years ago that as an organization, we made a commitment internally and into the world that our focus was going to be on girls and we were going to become um, the leading girls' rights organization in the world. So I think that's the kind of genesis of that focus on girls. And then there was continued conversations, for example, even within Plan USA, about so what does this mean in the context of uh, localization, in the context of decolonization? And so there was, it, it started percolating there. Mm -hmm. uh, we then committed ourselves to having an approach that really engages girls. We have an approach that we call Girl Engage, which starts with this premise that girls should be involved from the start to the end of any program from design um, to development. So that's when we reached out to our country offices to say, where can we, where can we collaborate with you? What would be a great program to work with you? And one of them came out was this grant making. Uh, we have several of these programs going there, some in education, some in economic empowerment, and then there was this one on grant making for political advocacy uh, and for advocacy organizations. So that's when this idea started. And, and we worked with our country offices to engage girl leaders. As well. Excellent. And what are the insights that you're gaining from, from, from doing all of this? What, what are, it, it may be early days, but what are some of the insights that you're already beginning to glean and, uh, and hopefully inform how you go about things going down the line? I think a couple of things, okay, <laughs> if I may. Um, one is wow, girls have great ideas, and 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 we and then the second one, the great ideas that we need to be listening to, and we need to adapt quickly. The second one, and I think this is really really important, is that we're not just listening because it's politically correct to do so, or this is the time demands are being made of us, and we need to do this. Um, no, we need to listen because what they have to tell us really really matters, and I. Um, just illustrate one from another program in Zimbabwe as well, where we were developing a program for girls to be able to stay in secondary school. So we were talking to girls and they were saying in rural area, in a rural part of Zimbabwe, and they were saying, oh, it's really hard for us to get, get to school. Can you help us? Uh, and this is through our community-based programs. And our response initially was to just say, hey, uh, we can arrange for transport for you um, to get to school and back home every day. Um, and they said, what makes you think? So then when we asked them and proposed that, they came back to saying, what makes you think that um, getting on a motorcycle is safe for us when a man is, right? You know, another young man is uh, is riding. It's not safe for us in, in terms of the motorcycle itself. And then it's not safe for us from our, in terms of our sense of sexual safety. Then that's when we stopped and said, so what do you do to get to school? Because they were coming to school regardless of our program. And they told us, oh, what we're doing is uh, something they, they, their own term was bushboarding. 
which meant that they just found houses around the school that they went to. And then on weekends, they went back home. Uh, but again, in very unsafe ways, that trek going back home was quite unsafe. So that's what then led us to saying, uh, working with them and saying, oh, we do need to build boarding houses in the school compound so that the girls can stay safe and focus on their education and, and, and work with it. So I think those, those elements of engage the girls, there's so much wisdom in what they have to say. Uh, we will design programs incorrectly if, if we don't do this. So I'll tell you one more story, Alberto, and this is one that, that is very dear to my heart. Great. In, 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 in my past, before joining PLAN, I spent 20 years working uh, for two international organizations that are very fo focused on advancing sexual and reproductive health and rights. Which, which ones were they? This is Pathfinder International and in Gender Health. And one of the things that struck me, and we often worked with national governments with uh, to design programs that affected uh, uh, women at a population level. And what really struck me uh, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, where we know, uh, the statistics tell us this, that the majority of women of reproductive age are below 25 years of age. And yet, when we look at our program designs and what we're offering in terms of the contraceptive methods, the way we inform people, they're all designed for over 25 year olds. And what a difference it would make if we started designing programs and said, look, the majority of our population, the majority of users of reproductive health technologies are women below 25 years of age. Let's ask them, what is it that you want? What are the methods that work best for you? What is it? What are some of the barriers you're facing and what can we do? There have been pockets of this, but I have not seen national, I've seen national policies designed for what is considered a small subsection of the population that's under 25. And yet that's actually, when you look at the numbers, and the demographic numbers for the next 20 years to come, uh, it's clear that under 25-year-olds will be the, the largest group working on this. Can you imagine what a change in our programming, in our mindset, uh, including even where services are offered, uh, will occur if we change the, change how we do programming? So that's... Yeah. yeah. Now, that is counterintuitive that a lot of the um, the, the focus would have been on, on, on women 25 and over. Um, Especially since you think in the developing world, the cultural norms are, are, are a little bit different sometimes than what you might have in New York uh, or London, where where people are, might be getting married at a later age and so forth. What what are some of those? Um, can you give me an example of something that um, some sort of initiative that was focused at, at, at an older demographic than you would ideally want, you know? Uh, well, well, a lot of the initiatives that we have, and then these are, I think they've been enormously successful. I don't want to, I don't make it sound like they haven't been successful, okay? Hundreds of millions of women are uh, accessing um, services because, um, uh, through, through all the work that has been done. But having said that, um, uh, as, a, as a clear example is expected when you say, where are contraceptives available 99% of the time, except for the short-acting methods, uh, and that's that too, only the pill, they're only available in health facilities and they're available in health facilities from um, 8 a.m. till 4 p.m. in most countries in the world, or it'll be 9, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you know, but roughly that time zone. Well, where do you think the under 25-year-olds are at that time? And it's Monday to Friday, uh, it's not on the weekends. And so just as a simple example, the way we set it up, where that service is available, 
Is it convenient for them? Is it where it can be easily accessible? Uh, is it at a time that works for them? All of those are not taken into consideration and therefore um, their use levels are much lower than others as mm -hmm. well. And so you, yeah, I always like getting a little bit of insight as well into my guests' uh, career trajectory, personal narrative, and you sort of alluded to it a little bit in terms of your, your experience so far, but give us a, shed more light on, on your background and what's driving you. Fair enough. Um, so just a little bit, okay. I grew up in a, in a very small sect of the Shia Muslim community in Tanzania. So I'm, I know I don't look Tanzanian, like the normal Tanzanian, but I'm a third generation um, um, Tanzanian as well. And, and as I was growing up, I had a very, very clear, um, look into, into gender inequality throughout my family. So I want to be clear, women were very powerful in our community, very powerful in, in their voice and where, where, they, where they showed up. However, when it came to professional advancement, through when it came to career advancement, that was not the case at all. My mother was a professional, but she was the only professional I knew from my community. Mm. Okay, everyone else was expected and stayed at home and then venture outside the house. And I saw that happen to uh, members of my family who even though they were doing well academically, if they were female at the end of their secondary education, that was it. There was nothing to move forward to. Whereas all the boys were expected, some of, some of us were not very good at what we did uh, academically. And yet there was an expectation, you're still going to get further education and all kinds of family, uh, you know, the family made attempts or found the money to to put you through uh, some form of college or advanced technical education as well. So that was my start. And that was really that insight into, hey, I'm seeing, I'm watching this. And my mother was always making me very aware of what was going on as well. Um, so when I came back from college um, um, and I went to college in the United States, I did my um, uh, secondary education in, in the US, in Tanzania. And then it was only in college that I was in the US. When I came back, I think a couple of things. One was a drive to say, now how do I contribute back to my country? Um, this is 1989. Um, Tanzania is the, at that point, one of the uh, three poorest countries in the world. Um, so there was not an option for me. It was clear, you have to contribute back to the community. But I was also really inspired by the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so, okay, it's time to get back. What do we do? So with a, with a high school friend of mine, we started a, uh, uh, the Kulana Center for Children's Rights. And uh, the center was focused on assisting, supporting homeless children, developing programs for homeless children, and also on advancing children's rights in Tanzania because Tanzania signed and ratified, but people didn't have an understanding of what is it that it, what does this mean now in terms of being a signatory uh, to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So, and that is where my passion began. And, and so when I was working with children, what was very evident, and we we're trying to draw on examples from all over the world, and we realized that 99% of all programs for children living on the streets were actually designed for boys. And we were trying to have a program that was for both boys and girls. And when we talked to the girls, we realized that both their pathways to the streets were very different from the pathways that boys had to the street. Um, they, they came through, boys came directly from home, running away from a dire situation and came to the streets. Girls first went, came out and came out as domestic laborers and then ran away when they couldn't find any other options and ended up on the streets. And then their lived realities on the streets were very, very different as well. 
And that for me was a, is always a reminder. I go back to that 30 years later. I keep, you know, 30 years on, I keep going back saying, hey, this is the lived reality. Okay. And then it was after that, that, you know, after we formed the center, left it in, in, in the next generation of leadership that uh, seven years later, um, that I went into doing reproductive health and rights work. And that's been my career for 20 years. Never um, looked back. Never looked back. And then when the opportunity to come to plan, which was advancing girls' rights, and, you know, in our reproductive health programs in the 20 years, there was always a focus on girls. There was always a focus on young women. Uh, but plan allowed me to come back full circle and really focus on girls coming into their power on, on introducing more integrated development principles as well and making sure that girls were receiving not just reproductive health services, but everything around it that enables her to be her best self, to be able to make the best decisions for herself and to lead. Yeah. I love it how you start uh, describing your, your background and your, your, your narrative by pointing especially to your mother and the fact that she was a professional, the fact that she was a positive influence on you. And arguably, were it not for her influence, we may not be having this conversation here today. And I and and what I specifically like about that, it brings the whole thing full circle because there's such a, a correlation, I think, between a, a mother's degree of educational attainment and how well she does to her child's expected life outcomes, right? Absolutely. It's not just investing in the child, but I think in investing in women's economic empowerment and so forth is also a great way of investing in kids, right? Absolutely. I, I cannot, um, I, I thank you, Alberto. I hadn't put those things together, but that investment in my mother, uh, she was the youngest of 13. So I think in some ways her father, her parents were ready to say, okay, she's the youngest one. <laughs> um, uh we're going to invest in her yeah absolutely tell me do you have a key takeaway that you'd love to share with us before we part ways today uh, what's the one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show right so i'm going to tell you about two things if you don't mind i know you asked me for one but i'm going to tell you about two, two is even better okay. great uh as part of our we are the girls campaign uh one of the things that we have done is partner with uh uh, with an image agency, an image reproduction agency called Unsplash. Uh, and with them, we've launched a partnership um, titled Girls Versus Stereotypes, um, challenging, challenge prevailing cultural stereotypes and societal ba barriers that erode with girls' confidence, leadership, and potential. Now, why we've done that is because, as I, you've, you've heard me say over and over again, we know that the best programs for girls are led by girls. And so what we went is we went and talked with US girls between the ages of 13 and 18 and asked them saying, how do you want to be depicted in visual media? Because that kept coming up as well. The way we're depicted is very sexualized. It's, it's about the kinds of terms that are used. So with Unsplash, we've launched this particular campaign and the winners um, are going to be announced very soon or I think have been announced um, uh, as part of the International Day of the Girl, which was yesterday, October 11th. Um, and so through an Instagram account, when we asked the girls um, to share their thoughts and feelings about being in it, about their experience of being a girl today, they just said they really want, uh, and how they're depicted in visual media, they just came back and said, oh, it's, it's words like sexy and hot come up, particular images of very thin uh, girls all made up in ways that that's, that's not how girls usually are, uh, are what is being presented to them. Um, so 
That's when we've partnered with Unsplash to rethink the way the girls are seen, repopulate the images that that are represented and and repopulate their their image bank with images of girls um, that represent the power of girls as well. And so we've invited photographers to submit their images that show their girls in their diversity, in their strength. And you should go and look at Unsplash and Plan. If you just search it, Google search it, you'll be amazed at the incredible variety of uh, images. So why do I bring this up? I think our own mental images, if there's a takeaway, our own mental images have to change. We have to check ourselves against what is the expected image that we would be seeing? How are we in our own minds representing girls um, out there? Uh, and in our and and what could we be doing to change, make that change happen as well? I think it's absolutely critical that we listen to girls and we ask ourselves, what is a tremendous variety uh, of ways in which um, girls show up, right? And when and how are we showing up in their journey? I'm a parent of two teenage girls. I'm a parent of three kids, but of two, two teenage girls, and I'm just amazed every day at how different they are, and to recognize that however they dress, however differently they're coming, however differently they're dressing me, that that's part of embracing their difference. And I think we all need to work on embracing that particular difference and asking people reflect, just reflect on what is it that we can, uh, uh, what can we do for the girls and children in our, and we better support them, amplify voices, uh, support their needs. So I think that decolonization, deconstruction has to happen in our heads first, because without that, uh, we're gonna, status quo is going to continue to be the way it is. Great. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today and and learning from you and learning about the work and your campaigns. And thank you for waking up early to join us today. I know it's, uh, it's a little bit early out there in the East Coast, but I appreciate it. Thank you, Alberto, and thank you for having me on the show. It's been such a pleasure just to have this conversation with you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Mustafa Kudrati, President and Chief Executive Officer of Plan International USA. For information about this conversation and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Very much enjoyed producing today's episode for you. I hope you found it as informative and insightful as I did. I thank you very much for tuning in week in and week out. And I look forward to catching up with you next week.